Welcome. You're listening to Conversations, a Park Church podcast, and the production of Park First Congregational United Church of Christ in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Park Church is a community where everyone is welcome, where the diversity of God's creation is celebrated. Join us each week in conversation as we grow closer to God, to each other, and to our Christian faith. If you were not with us last week, I want to take a moment to introduce Dr. Craig Vandermoss. Dr. Vandermoss is the senior deacon here at Park Church. He's also a clinical psychologist. He's also a scholar of scripture and the history of religions. Uh, So what he is presenting for us uh, last week and this week uh, are essentially presentations on two books uh, out of a projected seven that he's written uh, and is writing uh, about the evolution first of scripture last week, the Bible. Where did we get it? Uh, What do we do with it? And this week on the evolution and syncretism of religion. Uh, If you get a chance, please pick up a copy of the book. It's really excellent. I got a chance to read both of them uh, and I very much enjoyed it. I think particularly if this is something that's interesting to you but you don't know where to start to dive in, this is a great place to begin. Uh, without any further ado, I'll pass it off to Dr. Vandermoss. All right. Well, titles of both my books start with the word evolution. For many Christians, this is a dirty word. Some Christians believe you cannot be an adherent of the theory of evolution and still be a Christian. I actually believe that evolution is the best argument for the existence of God, but that's a subject for a future book. Evolution is considered a theory a term with a scientific meaning that is different from what the general population thinks of when they hear this term. Theories are more than hypotheses. A hypothesis is an educated guess that is based on observations. Theories are explanations that are generally accepted to be true. Gravity is considered a theory. Like with gravity, scientists do not dispute evolution. These are some important uh, evolutionary dates. 65 million years ago, primates diverged from other mammals. 39 million years ago, the earliest apes evolved. And 7 million years ago, the human lineage split off from that of chimpanzees. In this presentation, I'll share just a few of the early hominid species. This species is one of the best known of the early hominins. Fragmented remains of several hundred individuals, including males, females, and juveniles, have been found in East Africa. The famous fossil Lucy belongs to this species. All of the earliest hominids have been found only in Africa. It was not until around 1,800,000 years ago with the genus Homo that migrations might have started out of Africa. This is the first member of the genus Homo, our own uh, genus. Uh, We are Homo sapiens. Homo is our genus, and sapiens our species name. Homo habilis had a larger brain than the group, uh, than the genus Australopithecus, and there's evidence that this species used stone tools. This species was as tall as modern humans and with a similar build arms of human length rather than ape length. This may have been the first in the human line to shed fur in favor of skin, allowing it to sweat in the warmer climate. Extensively used stone tools. 
It is probably the ancestor of all subsequent species of Homo. This species was probably the common ancestor of both Homo neanderthalus and the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Fossils have been found across Africa and Europe. Um, the Neanderthals lived throughout Europe. They coexisted during much of the same period as Homo sapiens. And there's much speculation about how much the two species interacted with each other. They thrived for 300,000 years. They were accomplished toolmakers. Geneticists tell us that most Europeans and Asians have between 1 and 2% Neanderthal DNA. Indigenous sub-Saharan Africans have none or very little as their ancestors did not migrate out of Africa to Eurasia. This is their own species. Species dates to 150,000 years ago and started to look like modern humans about 100,000 years ago. 150,000 years sounds like a long time. But if we were to put it on a geological time scale of one calendar year, in which the origin of the Earth 4.5 billion years ago occurs at midnight on January 1st, the appearance of Homo sapiens would not occur until December 31st at about 11.49 p.m. About 1.8 million years ago, early humans started leaving Africa. Most of the earliest fossils suggest variants of the species Homo ergaster. Once separated from the African population from which they came, these other populations evolved on their own. Over time, they developed into Homo neanderthalensis and Homo erectus. Fossils of Homo neanderthals are found throughout Europe with none found in Africa. Our own species, Homo sapiens, however, did not leave Africa at this time. One thing I found fascinating is evidence that about 50,000 years ago, there were four distinct species of hominids that lived concurrently. Neanderthals lived in Europe, Homo erectus in East Asia and Africa, Homo floriensis, a dwarf species that lived on the island of Flores in Indonesia. Uh, fossils have been dated to less than 38,000 years ago. The species is believed to be descended from Homo erectus and evolved independently and in isolation on this island. And then the fourth would be the ancestors of Homo sapiens who were still in Africa. It's believed that our ancestors originated in what is now Ethiopia, or at least somewhere in East Africa. It is believed that our ancestors left Africa about 50,000 years ago and that language had developed shortly before this. Some believe the group left Africa as early as 65,000 years ago. Geneticists believe there was a single immigration of our ancestors out of Africa, and the number of people leaving may have been as small as 150 individuals. Our ancestors were hunter-gatherers and did not settle down, and so they continued to cover significant distances. They initially went from Africa to the Arabian Peninsula. They likely often follow coastlines. While some people continued to push on into new territories, others remained in various geographical locations. And so the population of the world from this small group of people appeared to be quite orderly. 
From the Arabian Peninsula, the migration moved to India. From there, some migrated on to Asia, and some continued on to the Australian landmass, China, and Japan. Others went northwest in the present-day Iran and Turkey, and probably eventually met and maybe combated the Neanderthals. By about 30,000 years ago, the Neanderthals went extinct. The earliest evidence of some type of religion appears to be in the Middle Paleolithic age. Uh, it's in this period that there's the first evidence of burials. Burying of the dead is a behavior that is unique to humans. Most animals simply ignore the dead and leave the bodies for scavengers and bacteria. Why during the Middle Paleolithic, Paleolithic age did humans start to bury their dead? After all, they were hunter-gatherers who did not live in settlements, and so there was no need for disposing of bodies for sanitary reasons. Although we cannot know the reasons for sure, it is assumed that religious beliefs played a role in the burials, possibly a belief in an afterlife or a belief in a living corpse. The earliest examples of hominid remains were found in caves rather than true burials, but they are suggestive of deliberate disposal of bodies. The earliest true burials that have been discovered were of more anatomically modern humans beginning around 100,000 years ago. Findings have been found in Israel and in the Nile Valley. Some of these individuals had simple grave goods buried with them. The Neolithic Age, also called the New Stone Age, begins when we started domesticating plants and animals in the Near East. Large cemeteries with elaborate grave furniture in some graves have been found. A prominent characteristic of prehistoric religion likely was animism, the view that plants, non-living things, and especially animals possessed the spiritual essence. Humans were considered a part of nature. Sir Edward Burnett Tyler, sometimes considered the founder of social anthropology, believed this was one of the earliest religious conceptions. Tyler saw two principal dogmas in animism the belief in souls continuing to exist after death, and also a belief in other spirits, including deities. Tyler believed that early man thought souls would wander during one's sleep and appear to others in their dreams. Other people's souls would appear to us in our dreams, and after one's death, the soul would depart the body permanently, but would continue to exist. After all, the dead appear in dreams as well. Tyler believed that the belief in the soul of humans generalized to other living things and inanimate objects as well. They too appear in dreams. These type of beliefs are supported by more contemporary hunter-gatherer societies that have been studied. Tyler said these beliefs become a religion once they are institutionalized through communal rituals. In my book, I uh, discuss other important concepts in the early development of religion, including ancestor cults, the cult of the dead, fetishism, totemism, shamanism, myth, ritual, belief in afterlife, cannibalism, and sacrifice, including human sacrifice. You may remember from last week that Mesopotamia is the area that the patriarch Abraham came from. Around 3000 BCE, a Sumerian culture developed in southern Mesopotamia. 
They were a remarkable civilization, perhaps the first civilization. They're credited with the invention of writing. The cultures of Mesopotamia, which preceded the Hebrews by over a thousand years, certainly likely had a great effect on the religion of the Hebrew people and the stories of the Torah. The story of the Tower of Babel, a tower with its top in the heavens in Genesis 11, is believed by scholars to have been based on the Mesopotamian ziggurats. I demonstrate in my book the similarity of the Sumerian law codes to the law codes of Moses. Mesopotamian creation myths with some similarities to the myth in Genesis predated the Hebrew writings by centuries. Mesopotamian deluge myths predate the Hebrew writings by a millennium. Mesopotamians believed in an afterlife, although a dreary and shadowy existence. The later early Hebrew people also conceived of such a place and called it Sheol. The Mesopotamian people made sacrifices to the gods in order to try to curry favor from them. The later early Hebrew people also made sacrifices to Yahweh for the same reasons, that is, health, safety, prosperity, or to make amends. The Mesopotamian people believed that the gods resided in their temples. The later early Hebrew people believed that Yahweh resided in the portable tabernacle and then later in the temple built by King Solomon. The Sumerian poem Inki and Ninhursag describes a garden paradise called Dilmun. In this garden are forbidden plants. The god Inki eats them and is cursed. This story predates the Genesis story by many hundreds of years. A snake was a villain in the epic of Gilgamesh, as it was in the Genesis story of the Garden of Eden, where the serpent tempts Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. In the epic of Gilgamesh, the hero obtains a plant from the bottom of a sea that can restore youth and vigor. A serpent ends up stealing the plant. Beginnings of Moses are described in the Hebrew book of Exodus. Moses was born in secret and after three months was placed in a papyrus basket lined with pitch. The basket was placed among the reeds on the banks of a river. Moses was discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter who raised him. Sargon of Mesopotamia was born in secret and placed in a basket of reeds which was sealed with pitch. The basket was set adrift in the Euphrates River. Sargon was raised by the king's gardener and achieved power by winning the favor of the goddess Ishtar. The story of Sargon's beginning predates the story of Moses by almost a thousand years. The Sumerians had wisdom literature similar to that found in the Hebrew book of Proverbs. The Sumerian literature predates the Hebrew literature by over a millennium. Again, more than a millennium before the book of Job was a Sumerian story about a righteous man who was afflicted with sickness and suffering. Like a, the book of Job, the story is about a quandary of why bad things happen even to good people. So there's a number of Mesopotamian literature that predates similar Hebrew literature by about a thousand years. They're very similar. The Hebrew people, which according to the Bible were initially just the family of Jacob, were said to live in the land of Egypt for 430 years you would certainly think that they would have become essentially Egyptian. One interesting report about the Egyptians was made by the Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus reported that the ancient Egyptians were unique in that they practiced circumcision. 
The ancient Semites, Babylonians, and Sumerians did not practice this. Also interestingly, Herodotus reported that the ancient Egyptians had an aversion to swine. Also of interest was a pharaoh by the name of Akhenaten, who started something of a new religion in Egypt. Akhenaten advocated the worship of one god, Aten. Many historians believe this was the first instance of monotheism. Akhenaten in his hymn to Aten said, O thou only God, there is no other God than thou. After his death, the Egyptians reverted back to the previous religious traditions. Interestingly, Akhenaten's son, his successor, was King Tutankhamun, also known as King Tut. One well-known Egyptian god was Horus. Uh, D.M. Murdoch, in her research on the god Horus, reported a remarkable biography. Horus was born on December 25th in a manger. He was of royal descent, and his mother was the virgin Isis Mary. Horus's birth was announced by a star in the east and attended by three wise men. At age 12, he was a child teacher in the temple, and at 30, he was baptized. Horus was baptized by Anup the baptizer, who was later decapitated. The Egyptian god had 12 companions, helpers, or disciples. Horus performed miracles, exercised demons, and raised Osiris from the dead. The god walked on water. Horus was crucified between two thieves. He, or Osiris, was buried for three days in the tomb and resurrected. Horus's personal epithet was Lusa, the ever-becoming son of the father. He was called Holy Child as well as the Anointed One. He battled with the evil one known as Set or Seth. Remember that we talked last week about Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. One would think from the Hebrew book of Joshua that the Israelites invaded Canaan and militarily defeated all of the local peoples. However, archaeologist William Deaver said, archaeologists now predominantly agree that the Israelites developed from within Canaanite society and that there was not a widespread foreign invasion in which the indigenous peoples were destroyed. Biblical Hebrew is a Canaanite dialect. Even the prophet Ezekiel wrote about Israelites, Israel's Canaanite roots. From Ezekiel 16.3, your origin and your birth are of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Archaeologists Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman put it this way. The emergence of early Israel was an outcome of the collapse of the Canaanite culture, not its cause. And most of the Israelites did not come from outside Canaan. They emerged from within it. There was no mass exodus from Egypt. There was no violent conquest of Canaan. Most of the people who formed early Israel were local people, the same people whom we see in the highlands throughout the Bronze and Iron Ages. The early Israelites were irony of ironies, themselves originally Canaanites. I discuss quite extensively in my book the topic of human sacrifice in the land of Canaan. It was practiced not only throughout the Levant, but also within Israel. Also, it was used not only to worship the so-called false gods, but also Yahweh. So where did the god Yahweh come from? I've written quite extensively also about this. Remember from last week's presentation 
that two of the earliest sources for the Torah were the Yahweh source and the Elohim source. The Yahweh source is believed to have been the earliest and is believed to have come from the southern kingdom of Judah and was written in the 9th or 10th centuries BCE. It's called the Yahweh source because God is referred to as Yahweh. The God uh, they described is very human-like. He walks and talks, enjoys pleasing odors, and has quite a temper. The Elohim source is believed to have come from the northern part of Israel and was believed to have been written in the 9th or 8th centuries BCE. Their God is called Elohim and is more benevolent and less anthropomorphic. The noun El occurs in the Old Testament 230 times. Professor of Biblical Studies Mark Smith believes that El was the original God of Israel, as evidenced in part by the name Israel, which is an El name and not a Yahwistic name. This fact would suggest that El was the original chief God of the group named Israel. In the various pantheons of deities in the Middle East was the concept of a chief God who ruled over a divine council. From Psalms 82, we have, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. From Deuteronomy 32, 8-9, describes the distinction between Yahweh and El. And the distinction is also made in Exodus 5, 2-3. When the Most High Elion apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, He fixed the boundaries of the people according to the number of the gods. Yahweh's own portion was his people, Jacob his allotted share. It's from Deuteronomy 32, 8-9. From Exodus 5, 2-3. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. But by by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This passage presents an order in which, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 presents an order in which each deity received its own nation. Israel was the nation that Yahweh received. It also suggests that Yahweh, originally a warrior god from Sinai, Paran, Edom, Teman area, was known separately from El at an early point in early Israel. Perhaps due to trade with Edom and Midian, Yahweh entered secondarily into the Israelite highland religion. Passages such as Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 suggest a literary vestige of the initial assimilation of Yahweh, according to Mark Smith, the southern warrior god, into the larger highland uh, pantheism, headed by El. Other texts point to Asherah, which was El's consort, and to Baal and other deities as members of this pantheon. In time, El and Yahweh, according to Mark Smith, were identified, while Yahweh and Baal coexisted and later competed as warrior gods. So it would seem that the eventual god of Israel was a merger of Yahweh, a god imported into the southern region of Israel, with El, the primary Canaanite deity. Although a Canaanite deity, the Hebrew scriptures have no condemnations of El, such as there are the god Baal. Baal was an adversary. El was not. Yahweh eventually took on many of the characteristics of El, that is, being an aged, patriarchal god who is merciful, kind, and gracious. Does anybody know where Moses went after he fled Egypt after killing an Egyptian? 
questions. What's that? Midian is it. There he got married. And the woman's father, Jethro, anybody know what occupation Jethro had? John? He was a priest. And just who was the God that he was a priest to, one might wonder. Sigmund Freud, I mean, it could have been Yahweh, because that's the, exactly the area where Yahweh originated. Sigmund Freud hypothesized that he believed there were actually two Moses. One was a monotheist who was the follower of the Egyptian god Aten and led a group of Hebrews out of Egypt when the god Aten was no longer in favor. He brought with him the idea of circumcision and an aversion to swine. The other Moses was the son-in-law of the Midianite priest Jethro, a follower of the god Yahweh. Freud believed the religion of the Israelites was a conflation of these two. I want to skip ahead now to the time of the Persian Empire. Remember that the Persians conquered the Babylonians and allowed uh, captive peoples, including the Israelites, to return to their homelands. What was the religion of the Hebrews like at this time when they returned from the Babylonian exile? There still was great emphasis on making sacrifices to God. Solomon's temple was to be rebuilt for that reason. Also, following laws was very important, including practicing circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, following dietary and sanitary laws. There was no belief in heaven or hell or a need to be saved. The afterlife was conceived of as shoal, a shadowy existence for all people, whether one was good or evil. What was the religion of these Persians? Anybody know that? called Zoroastrianism, following the teachings of Zoroaster, also known as Zarathustra, the, the uh, Strauss piece, also Sprach Zarathustra. Uh, it had much influence on Judaism and in particular later Christianity. Mary Boyce is a Persian expert. Uh, listen to her description of Zoroastrianism. Many of Zoroaster's fundamental doctrines became disseminated throughout the region, from Egypt to the Black Sea, namely that there is a supreme God who is the creator, that an evil power exists which is opposed to him and not under his control, that he has emanated many lesser divinities to help combat this power, that he has created this world for a purpose, and that in its present state it will have an end that this end will be heralded by the coming of a cosmic savior who will help to bring it about. That meantime, heaven and hell exist with an individual judgment to decide the fate of each soul at death. That at the end of time, there will be a resurrection of the dead and a last judgment with annihilation of the wicked and that thereafter the kingdom of God will come upon earth and the righteous will enter into it as into a garden and be happy there in the presence of God forever, immortal themselves in body as well as soul. So interesting compared to the Jewish religion at that time, which sounds closer to our Christianity. Hmm. 
remarkable changes occurred between 200 and 800 BCE. German philosopher and psychiatrist Karl Jaspers termed this period the Axial Age. During this time period were the beginnings of the great religions. The great Jewish prophets, Confucius and Lao Tse in China, Buddha, Zoroaster, the Greek philosophers, and many others lived and taught during this time period. It was a great turning point in man's history. Jaspers believed there were four critical stages in the evolution of man. The first stage was the genesis of speech, the use of tools, and the use of fire through which he first became man. Second critical stage was the establishment of the first ancient civilizations. The actual period through which, spiritually, man unfolded his full human potentialities and for the scientific technical age. Prior to the actual age, the purpose of religion was for cosmic maintenance, using the terminology of theologian John Hick. Humans completed various rituals, including making sacrifices and having festivals to appease various gods. The goal was to make amends for mistakes or sins, or to entreat gods for favors such as rain, cure from disease, victory in battle, and so forth. During the Axial Age, the purpose of religion shifted to personal transformation, again using Hicks' terminology. Individuals began working on making personal changes in order to achieve greater happiness or the possibility of immortality or a glorious afterlife. There was expansion of the notion of goodness from the flourishing of oneself, family, or tribe to an ever-widening circle. During this period of time, there was greater self-reflection, self-awareness, and self-consciousness. Philosophers, ascetics, wandering thinkers, and prophets began to appear. There was increasing contemplation and fear about death. Associated with this growing concern about death was a growing concern about ethics and morality. We can see this shift in the religion of the Hebrews. It was not until the prophets that we saw an emphasis on justice issues rather than on just appeasing God. Prior to Moses, religion involved for Abraham and his offspring primarily circumcision and making burnt offerings. With Moses, we have the addition of various laws to keep, with the purpose again being of appeasing God or for keeping law and order in the Israelite community. There was no concept for a heavenly reward or an emphasis on helping the downtrodden for justice's sake. With the Hebrew prophets, there now was an emphasis on helping the poor, children, widows, the downtrodden. These prophets included Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Trito Isaiah. The Axial Age was the beginning of the end of the mythical age. Rationality now was integrated into religions, that is, logos instead of mythos. With this change came more transcendent conceptualizations of God. According to Carl Jaspers, this overall modification of humanity may be termed spiritualization. Jaspers believed the changes that happened in the actual age were due to biological evolution. Religious author Karen Armstrong also wrote about this pivotal age and termed it the Great Transformation. Quoting her, 
Before the actual age, ritual and animal sacrifice had been central to the religious quest. You experienced the divine and sacred dramas that, like a great theatrical experience today, introduce you to another level of existence. The actual sages changed this. They still valued ritual, but gave it a new ethical significance and put morality at the heart of the spiritual life. The only way you could encounter what they called God, Nirvana, Brahman, or the way was to live a compassionate life. All the sages preached the spirituality of empathy and compassion. They insisted that people must abandon their egotism and greed, their violence and unkindness. After the Persian Empire was the Greek and then the Roman Empires. Very important consequence of the Greek conquests was the concept of Hellenization. Greek culture and language spread throughout the territories that were conquered by the Greeks. All of the New Testament was written in Greek. Ancient Greece is often considered the birthplace of Western culture and of democracy. Practice of baptism has been found in many religions, including Buddhism, the religion of the ancient Egyptians, and the Zoroastrians. Practice was common in this time period, the Greco-Roman period. Religious scholar Riza Aslan wrote about this in his book Zealot, which is about the life of Jesus. Quoting him, To be sure, baptisms and water rituals were fairly common throughout the ancient Near East. Bands of baptizing groups roamed Syria and Palestine, initiating congregants into their orders by immersing them in water. Gentile converts to Judaism would often take a ceremonial bath to rid themselves of their former identity and enter into the chosen tribe. The Jews revered water for its liminal qualities, believing it had the power to transport a person or object from one state to another, from unclean to clean, from profane to holy. Aslan also wrote about miracle workers of that day, again quoting him. Jesus was not the only miracle worker trolling through Palestine, healing the sick and casting out demons. This was a world steeped in magic, and Jesus was just one of an untold number of diviners and dream interpreters, magicians and medicine men who wandered Judea and Galilee. Jesus did appear to be different in that he did not charge for services, as was customary of the other people. Many of these other uh, miracle workers are known to us to this day. One in particular is Apollonius of Tiana. Uh, Flavius Philostratus wrote about him in the second century. A New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman, wrote this fascinating description of Apollonius. From the beginning, his mother knew that he was no ordinary person. Prior to his birth, a heavenly figure appeared to her, announcing that her son would not be a mere mortal, but would himself be divine. This prophecy was confirmed by the miraculous character of his birth, a birth accompanied by supernatural signs. The boy was already recognized as a spiritual authority in his youth. His discussions with recognized experts showed his superior knowledge of all things religious. As an adult, he left home to engage in an itinerant preaching ministry. He went from village to town with his message of good news, proclaiming that people should forego their concern for the material things of life 
such as how they should dress and what they should eat. They should instead be concerned with eternal souls. He gathered around him a number of disciples who were amazed by his teachings and his flawless character. They became convinced that he was no ordinary man, but was the Son of God. Their faith received striking confirmation in the miraculous things that he did. He could reportedly predict the future, heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. Not everyone proved friendly, however. At the end of his life, his enemies trumped up charges against him, and he was placed on trial before Roman authorities for crimes against the state. Even after he departed this realm, however, he did not forsake his devoted followers. Some claimed that he had ascended bodily into heaven. Others said that he had appeared to them alive afterward, that they had talked with him and touched him and became convinced that he could not be bound by death. A number of his followers spread the good news about this man, recounting what they had seen him say and do. Eventually, some of these accounts came to be written down in books that circulated throughout the empire. Common during the Hellenistic Roman age were mystery cults or religions. They were termed mystery religions because the initiation rites, practices, and knowledge about God were kept secret among the members. Antonia Tripolitis, professor of late antiquities, maintains that although mystery religions had diverse rites and beliefs, they all shared three essential characteristics. They all had purification rites, which allowed the initiates to participate in the activities of the cult. They all promote a communion or a sense of a personal relationship with the worship deity. And they all promise a blessed, glorious life after earthly death. Angus maintains the following were common among them. Some sort of confession of sin was required. Baptisms were required. Sacred meals played an important role. Quoting Angus, all the mystery gods were primarily savior gods. To initiation was described the sacramental efficacy which atoned for a man's past, gave him comfort in the present, a participation in the divine life, and assured the faith and in, in hereafter of such dazzling splendor that the trials and conflicts of this earthly existence were dwarfed into insignificance. A particularly important mystery religion was Mithraism. Mithra was an Indo-Iranian uh, deity who originated in the 14th century BCE or earlier. He's a support, subordinate deity of the supreme deity, Ahura Mazda, named in Persia, or Varuna, as that guy was known in India. Worship of Mithra spread throughout Asia Minor during the Persian Empire's prominence. The religion of Mithra became popular in the Roman Empire in the late first century CE. It reached its climax in the third century, at which time its uh, sanctuaries were found from one end of the empire to the other. It was a rival at that time to Christianity. The Mithraists believed that the soul descended into the cosmos from the sun through the seven planetary spheres. Prayers were addressed to the sun three times daily. Sunday was their sacred day, and December 25th was celebrated as the birthday of the god Mithras. Tribolitis maintains that Mithraism came close to becoming the sole state religion of the Roman Empire 
if not for the conversion of Constantine to Christianity, which he then promoted. The significance of the date, December 25, is that it marks the winter solstice, when we have the shortest day of the year. After this, the sun rises higher in the sky. Thus, it is often known as the birth date of various sun gods. Doan notes this date as the birth date of Buddha, Mithras, Osiris, Horus, Hercules, Bacchus, Adonis, and other personifications of the sun. Although Mithraism and other solar deity religions lost out to Christianity, Christianity retained remnants of the solar religions. Besides Jesus' birth being celebrated on December 25th, and Sunday being the day of worship, uh, there was absolutely no evidence that, we act, that uh, Jesus actually was born on this date. Um, there's also what was shown here is a Christian monstros. Uh, they were used to uh, hold the host in the middle of the sun, the communion. Another would be the Easter sunrise services in which we have a conflation of the resurrection, resurrection of the sun, S-U-N, with the resurrection of the sun, S-O-N. While growing up, the word that best described the religion I was taught and believed in was revelation. As I've grown and learned, I would say that the word that best describes religion for me now is evolution. Judaism has evolved. Christianity has evolved. Religion in general has evolved. I have evolved. I pray that all of us will continue to evolve. Thank you for your attention. This has been Conversations, a Park Church podcast. Tune in each week for brief, meaningful study that brings us closer to God, to each other, and to our Christian faith. Join Park Church for Worship on Sunday mornings in downtown Grand Rapids at 10.30 a.m. and for adult study throughout the year as announced. Blessings to you, and we hope you'll join us again soon.